0: Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television, join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, did Home Alone Rowan John uses career, the greatest movie never made, and how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. I found that I
2: really liked writing about human beings, said Ian O'Connor. I don't feel like I write about quarterbacks and fielders, and shooting guards as much as I write about human beings. Ian's most recent book is Coach K, a book about Mike Krzyzewski. He's the five-time national champion at Duke, the NCAA's all-time leader in victories with nearly 1,200, and the first men to lead Team USA to three Olympic basketball gold medals. This book is about his biography. In this interview, Ian talks about his mentor, David McCraw, his view of what it means to be a reporter and a columnist, why he writes in chronological order, and how he chooses subjects, including Coach K, but also Bill Belichick, Derek Jeters, Arnold Palmer, and Jack Nicklaus.
1: Really, uh, when I attended college, I had a faculty advisor who's now a lawyer at the New York Times. He actually wrote a pretty famous letter to Donald Trump not not too long ago that went viral. (laughs) And his name is David McCraw. And he he just, uh, the first time I met him, I think he happened to be the advisor to the student newspaper at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. And he asked me what I like to do. And I said, well, I I love sports. And he said, okay. And and I think my goal as a kid was to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. That was not going to happen. And he said, well, what else do you like or or do you think you're good at? And I said, well, I'm good at my English courses and not so good in math. So he said, well, why don't you put the two together? You love sports. You you do well in, in your English courses and, and try some sports writing. So I said, okay. And I did. And one thing led to another. And, and so I I fell in love with it pretty quickly. And so that's really, it's, it's not a profound story, but that's how it started.
2: Did you have like a a certain niche you started with? I know now you kind of cover everything and maybe some more in depth profile pieces. Where did you kind of begin?
1: I I began just covering college sports at, at my school. And I found that I really liked writing about human beings. I feel like I could have applied my approach to whether it be politics, business, uh, religion, whatever. I, I don't really think that I write about quarterbacks and center fielders and shortstops and shooting guards as, as much as I write about human beings. Mm-hmm. So I, I did like finding out about people and and writing their stories. And I, I, that, it brought me great satisfaction and so with my books and with a lot of my writing anyway, though sometimes as a columnist, particularly in a, in a market like New York, you're firing and hiring people in your, in your columns. Those aren't uh, my favorite pieces to write. I, I think that any time that I can tell you a profound story about a human being, that's, that's really what I like to do and what I think I'm best at.
0: Did
2: anything about your writing change as you moved from like reporting and some of those things that are more third party, as opposed to when you actually got to do interviews, like what kind of changed about your style
1: when you got to ask the questions? (laughs) Well, I I just found that, first of all, and young journalists always ask me for advice entering the business. And I always say just outwork people. There There are people a lot more talented than I am in this business. But I felt like if I didn't really allow competitors to outwork me, that that would take me a fairly long way. And I I found that to be to be true. So first of all, just learning how to conduct interviews, interviewing as many people as humanly possible, whether you're writing a book or a column or, or a feature, and also as a columnist, not to forget that you got the column in the first place because of your reporting. And I think that Rather, there are some columnists who who write off the top of their heads. I, I don't like to do that. I feel like information is always the, the source of all good writing, including column writing and opinion writing. And my approach is, I feel that uh, since I'm trying to humanize my, my, my subjects as much as possible, I guess the, the most challenging thing is when I'm talking to someone, a family member of... Who whose family has been involved in, in in a recent tragedy, whether it would be a uh, somebody died in a car accident or uh, somebody died by suicide, uh, those are, are very difficult phone calls to make, particularly in the immediate wake of say of that tragedy. And uh, I, I find that to be the 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 least uh, appealing part of my job, but also a necessary one. And and I, and I, when I make those phone calls, and again, sometimes we're talking days after the event, the tragic event that unfolded, I try to connect with the person on the phone, just not as a journalist, but as someone who does care about what happened to, to his or her family and and genuinely so, and hopefully that comes across that way, because I feel like I have been able to, for, for the most part, maybe nine out of 10 times, keep that person on the phone and and willing to tell me his or her story. And I have found that after writing those pieces, I'll give you an example. One time I contacted really out of the blue, a woman whose husband had, had died of, of suicide. And and, and he was a coach. He was a longtime college coach. And I did not know her at all. And she decided, I'll t- I'll tell you the entire story or the story of uh, my family's uh, background and, and, and life off the record and because uh, I don't know you. And I said, OK. And then after 40 minutes of, of a phone conversation, an interview, she said, I'll tell you what. You sound like somebody that I can trust. Everything I just said is on the record. You can write it and send it to me after you write it. And I was at the time a columnist for a, a newspaper in New York. And I did, and I sent it to her. And, and then a week or two later, I was out to dinner, came back and I saw my message light blinking and I pressed it. My wife was in the room at the time and it was her voice and she started to say something and I stopped it. And I sent my wife out of the room because I didn't know what she was going to say. And I, I wanted to be alone when she said it. so. Uh, she, I I did play the message when I was alone and she said uh, she loved the story and she thanked me for, I think in her words, she was kind of joking, restoring her faith in, uh, in humanity. So I, I take those uh, stories and, and those phone calls as seriously as, as humanly possible and, and try to handle with great care. And so, uh, Those stories I do talk to young journalists about and how to approach those phone calls, because I think that's the toughest part of the business that I'm in.
2: Besides like tone and empathy and some of those things, is it just that are you are you admitting that you're you're just going to tell as honest of a story as you can tell? Or what are some of those things you might say early in a conversation
1: like that? Yeah, I think that Brock is is that uh, without saying it in your tone, you're trying to get across that You're a human being, too. You're not some robotic journalist who only cares about getting the story and, and, and over the course of the conversation, if, if say someone had just lost a, I loved the one to cancer. Well, that's happened to me too. And I've lost siblings in their fifties. So they died before their, their time. So, and, and really it is genuine. At least I feel it. I don't want it just to be a tool to get to a story. Right. And so without, without, saying it in those exact words you're trying to convey that in in your approach and Mm -hmm. in your tone so yeah i think that hey i I think that a lot of people if you if you tell your story and i do believe this to be true that you could help a lot of people Mm -hmm. who are in the same dealing with the same circumstances and you may not if you're not interested in that then you're probably not going to talk to me on the record about what just happened to you and your family. Right. Um, so I think in a lot of cases, that's, that's the, uh, the message I try to convey and the approach I try to use, because I, I do think that is true. I think when people tell stories of dealing with tragic circumstances, it has the potential at least to help a lot of others.
2: I may jump around your, your timeline some here. Tell me about, was it was your first book, The Jump? Like, how did you make the transition from writing columns to selling books and moving into more of an author status?
1: I always wanted to write books, but I was told by so many people, it's so difficult. And particularly when you have a day job, You're, you basically have two full-time jobs if you take on a, a book project. So I, I knew that. And that's probably why I think I was 39 when I started writing The, the Jump, and which was a book it was about a, a player high school phenom from Coney Island in Brooklyn. It really was more about the process back then high school prospects could jump straight to the NBA and skip college altogether. And he wanted to get his family out of the projects in Coney Island. And he was, he had a great name and and he had a lot of flair and he was from New York and he was on the cover of sports illustrated as a five foot 11 high school guard. And, so I, I was really writing about the process of recruiters and sneaker companies and agents and NBA executives all sort of closing in around him as he was trying to navigate his senior year of high school. So, but I, I felt like I was teaching myself how to write a book because I didn't know how. Mm-hmm. And, and it did, it was very, very difficult. And at, at the end of the, the process, and, and when you're writing a book in real time, when when it wasn't as if like later on I ended up writing about two legendary golfers Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus. Well their careers were over it, it was mm-hmm. done so I was it was really more a a research project really and and talking to hundreds of people and and adding to it. But when you're covering or writing about a season that's unfolding before you, you have no idea what's going to happen. So as it unfolds in real time, it was a roller coaster, which is probably apropos, well, it, it is fitting that, uh, that he was from Coney Island, one of the most famous uh, amusement parks and roller coasters in, in the world, but it, it felt like anything could happen, and basically in that journey over the course of a year, anything did happen, so it was a, it was building effectively a starter house, and, and hopefully I got better with each book going forward,
2: So to kind of look at the marketing side of things or maybe pitching yourself, did it make more sense at that time to write about something very timely? Do you see yourself as always writing about timely? Because it seems like if it was your first book, you might not get access to like Coach K or Belichick or Jeter or something like that, as opposed to this younger guy. It's like maybe a story not everyone knows quite the same way. Like, how do you kind of see the hierarchy of your books and, and taking on bigger and bigger responsibility for each new book?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And in retrospect, I think I missed the boat. The book to do was a year earlier following LeBron James in his senior season of high school, which was a crazy season. He got suspended and he ended up being one of the two or three greatest players of all time. But a lot went on that senior year. He was traveling about with his high school team. And I have to go back and and remind myself what was the alleged infraction. I think he received a. Uh, Uh, use of a vehicle at the time. Actually it was a sporting goods store that was involved in whether he got some free merchandise or something, but he was suspended for a handful of games by the state athletic association. So there was, and it was crazy. There was a lot of uh, a lot of great material that year. And he was LeBron James. The person I ended up following Sebastian Telfair was drafted in the first round in the NBA, but he ended up in Portland, didn't have a great career. So, I guess I learned that you, you want to uh, give yourself the best chance to have a lot of people read your book, buy your book. And it makes sense to start with figures who are better known, globally Mm -hmm. known, at least in the, in the world of sports. And, and so going forward, I do think I, I needed to learn how to write a book. And I, I feel like the jump taught me how to write a book, but. I also learned maybe some things not to do. And and so my second book was on Arnold Palmer, Jack Nichols. I had covered a lot of golf. So I felt like I had some institutional knowledge Mm -hmm. of of both of those figures and also knew that, okay, with my first book, I had to explain what it was about. And, And that is a bad place to start when you're trying to, and I'm not a salesman, but when you're trying to sell a book and somebody asks you, okay, what is your book about? And you need more than eight seconds to explain it. You're you're already you're already behind the eight ball. So uh, my book is about Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus's rivalry. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Now we know. What's the jump about? That's going to take me thirty to forty five seconds to explain it. The next book, Derek Jeter, self explanatory. Then uh, Bill Belichick, self explanatory. Coach K, particularly in his retirement year, which I didn't know was going to happen when I signed up to do the book. So. Uh, but, but I, I do think I made myself more qualified to write definitive portraits of these iconic sports figures by doing that first book.
2: You think there is still place for books like The Jump today? I mean, do you, would you align it with something like Moneyball, where it's just kind of a very specific niche within a niche type of thing, as opposed to more of a biography?
1: Yeah, I, I think there is. I think there is. And, and, I guess if I had written the same type of book about LeBron James, I'm wondering if it would have been a bestseller and the jump wasn't. Right. The uh, Moneyball, what's interesting about that, I thought it was a great book. When I heard they were making that into a movie, I had no idea how they were going to make that interesting to a, a mass audience. A lot of people who don't care about baseball certainly know nothing about small market versus big market in Major League Baseball. <laughs> and I, I thought it was a tremendous book. I had no idea how that could be a good movie, and then I watched the movie, and they did a great job. They pulled it off. I guess it helps to have Brad Pitt in the lead role, right, and right. I know that he played Billy Bean, the uh, the GM of the A's, who I know a little bit, and I know he was thrilled to have Brad Pitt play him. Who wouldn't be? But it was. A, I learned a lesson there. It's like you could, you could uh, could make a good movie, and, and and I suppose write a good book about almost anything, right. and. And so, no, I, I do think that uh, the jump could be successful. And I have to say, and I'm always asking the people I cover to be honest and, and, and to be accountable. I have to be accountable for the fact that that wasn't really commercially successful because it could have been. And I can't blame my, my central character in the book. I have to blame myself for, for, for that not being the case. My books going forward have, have all uh, made the New York Times bestseller list. And so I do think I learned uh, a lot of things and and hopefully applied them. And And my goal was to get better with each book. And I guess I'll let the readers be the judge of whether or not I actually pulled that off.
2: How do you kind of market yourself differently now? Like, I don't, I don't know if you, if you approach Belichick or coach K, do you give them one of your old books or like, how do you kind of Come in and market yourself today as far as being this authentic truth teller and the right guy for the job?
1: I always uh, try to go to the subject first and say, now these are unauthorized, non collaborative biographies. But to let them know upfront, I-, I want you to hear this from me first. I'm doing this book on your life. So, for starters, that's, my, that's the beginning of, of my process. I remember I went to see Arnold Palmer and I sat in his office in Orlando and he was very nice. He, he, he let me give my pitch for 15 minutes. And at the end of it, he said, listen, I, I hope your book is successful. I have nothing against you or the book, but I get offers like this all the time to cooperate. I, I'm really busy, so I'm going to have to say politely no. Uh, I wish you the best. So I'm leaving his office. I shake his hand. And on the way out the door, he says, uh, but if Jack Nicholas decides to help you, let me know. And I just said that that's like a perfect summation of their rivalry, which is extended at the time, it had extended past the, uh, the golf course into the golf course design business, and they competed in everything as ambassadors of the game, as, as men who ran golf tournaments on the PGA Tour. So, so I, I got Jack to, to commit. I, I knew that Jack Nicholas was a workaholic, so and I figured I have to grab him in the first 45 seconds. So the first thing I said to him when I met him in Palm Beach Gardens was, Jack, with or without you, I promise you, I will work as hard on this book as you've ever worked in your life on a golf course design project or anything with or without you. So he said, okay, I'll help you. So uh, I got him early. And then I called Arnold Palmer. And he said, okay, I'll help you because he he didn't want Jack to define the whole narrative. And so (laughs) but uh, I covered Derek Jeter as a columnist in New York. So he knew me, I flew down, On my own dime to Tampa, where the Yankees were in spring training from New York, just to tell him face to face, I do not want you to hear this from somebody else. I've been around you for your entire career, and I'm going to write a book about it as you uh, try to become the first Yankee to get to 3000 hits. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so I did Belichick. I never got to sit down with Belichick. Surprise, surprise. But I did tell his PR person, here's the deal. I'd love to sit down with Bill to explain how I'm doing it, why I'm doing it. He didn't take the meeting, but I was at least able to convey that to and have lunch with his his publicist and and lay it out. And uh, same thing with Coach K. Uh, I saw him in Madison Square Garden. I had already talked to his uh, chief communications officer at Duke. And explain what I wanted to do. The one thing I'll say about Krzyzewski is he, though, I think he wants to write his own book in retirement. And though I think he probably said to himself, why should I share my stories for free when I have no editorial control over the final product here? And I don't really have a good answer to that question, so I don't blame him. And he certainly didn't owe me anything, but he didn't block anyone uh, from talking to me. Belichick did, or at least Mm -hmm. attempted to, reached out to people and asked them not to talk to me. Cheshevsky didn't do that. In fact, he encouraged some people to grant interviews. He allowed me to talk to his best friend growing up in Chicago, his closest associates and players and coaches over the years. So uh, I will always appreciate him doing that because he certainly could have made my life more difficult as I was researching and writing this book.
2: So do you always have kind of a theme? Like these are not necessarily all-encompassing. You said it's it's more about Jeter's going for 3,000. Do you always have that kind of hook when you do a pitch or a project like this?
1: Not always, but I think in looking at it, uh, the the iconic sports figures that I've profiled in these books have been near the end game of either their playing careers or with Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, they were still relevant in, in the golf world, even though they weren't really playing or competing against each other anymore. But with Jeter, With Krzyzewski and Belichick, they were at the end of their careers, or at least closing in on it. And I got a a bit of a lucky bounce. And sometimes with books, you get bad bounces, you get good bounces. But Krzyzewski announcing his retirement in June, but deciding to coach one more year, that, that really helped, because had he just decided to hang it up in June, and my book comes out in February, then that certainly would have hurt. He, but having him do this victory tour with Duke, and I don't know if they're going to win the national championship. I suspect they're not good enough to do that. But just having a season and getting into the NCAA tournament, maybe winning a couple of games was a was a lucky bounce, an mm-hmm. author would call it. So, So I'll take it because I've had bad bounces too.
2: I've interviewed a few sports columnists and authors. I mean, a lot of it is, I think it's called like the iceberg effects. Like you're kind of writing a story, but it's really your, your knowledge of this coach or athlete or this whole program, that type of thing. Um, What's different about your research on a project like this? What are like to get in the weeds a little bit? What are the logistics like about all the pre-research you're doing before you even sit down to interview someone like Jeter or someone like that?
1: Well, it's a lot easier today. I'm 57. so. I started out in a world with no internet and and just no cell phones. And so the research today, it's, I don't want to call it easy. There's nothing easy about doing a book, but it's uh, just with technology and, and all the different uh, web outlets that are available to you to research things. And even something like newspapers.com, where you can go back into the, the 19th century even and, and find out information about a subject's great, great grandparents and other, other websites that provide that kind of, of information. And it was much harder uh, 30 years ago when I started out 35 years ago than it is now. But my, pro- my process is really pretty simple and I interview hundreds of people for each book And go back to grade school classmates and teachers if I can find them. And again, it's easier today to find those people and just have them tell their stories about their interactions with uh, the the primary subject. And it's, uh, again, not terribly profound method, but that's how I've always done it. Just start. And I usually write my books in chronological order simply because and I know some authors really detest doing it that way but I don't, I don't have a better formula. I, I like to start with an introduction in the present and then pretty much go back to childhood through uh, current day uh, matters and circumstances. So uh, that's how I approach it. It's just, I always believe in, make the extra phone call at every turn. You never know what's behind that uh, closed door. And if you don't uh, knock on it, you'll never find out. And a lot of times you'll make a phone call that you weren't sure you needed to make and it leads to something that is wow this is a piece of information that is really going to help make this book successful that's happened to me a number uh, on a number of occasions or a phone call could lead to 10 other phone calls that really gives you a scene an anecdote that makes the book so much better so it's um it's just a a process of reaching out to everyone you can find usually i i take two two and a half years to to complete a book. And so it's hundreds of interviews and just a lot of grinding 24 seven.
2: Are there any stories or bits of information like in the coach K book that were maybe interesting, but not relevant to the book? Like, how do you decide some of those things that are right on the line like that?
1: That's a good question. And there, there were even going back to the Belichick book, you have to make decisions. He's lived such a long and rich football life and so I'm writing about this great football figure. And so we had a player, Aaron Hernandez, who basically turned out to be a murderer and and later killed himself in in prison. So I get to a chapter about, or where Aaron Hernandez's playing career with the Patriots is, is explored. And I could have spent three years just on that chapter alone and talking to everyone who ever knew Aaron Hernandez. And I decided I can't do that. I I can't go. I'm not writing a book about Aaron Hernandez. And, and it sort of, I had to stop myself from going down a rabbit hole that would have taken me away from the primary purpose of of my project is to tell the reader who the heck Bill Belichick was and is. And so you, you have to make decisions. You also have a certain amount of time you need, you have deadlines too. And, and I'm used to deadlines being daily. And in this case, there's a two year deadline on most of my projects and I I couldn't afford to spend 10, 11 months on Aaron Hernandez. The book wasn't about him. So, so you make decisions on, on just one example of, okay, with this book, what, what do I do with this? How much can I commit to this? It's a sidebar really in Belichick's life. It's important, but how important is it to the, the narrative that you're piecing together. So so that's a good example of, of decisions you have to make.
2: How do you also, and you may not categorize things this way, but how do you think about facts versus feelings in a book like this? Are you thinking about emotional moments in, in these coaches' lives and some of those things? Do you write that in there? Or do you leave that aside? How do you kind of put in some of those emotional arcs?
1: Well, particularly in, in books where the, the subject is not participating, not cooperating. I think you have to be a little careful about that uh, in terms of describing his or her emotions, mm-hmm. because you're basically getting friends and longtime associates to tell you what those emotions were. And it's their, it's their opinion and their takeaway from an encounter with that person. So uh, sometimes you need really more than one source. If, if you're going to describe uh, an emotional state when you're not getting it directly from that individual. So, And and there are scenes and anecdotes in my book that I would not have published if I didn't have more than than one source. Mm. So I I think when it comes to feelings, if they're not being directly expressed by the subject of your book, so you need to really do some reporting on that and have some some real trust in your sources when you're expressing that in your book. Mm.
2: What advice might you have? So I think you mentioned a two year turnaround for a book like this. I'm sure a lot of your columns are 24 hours or less turnaround for sports columnists. Can't really 40, 40
1: minutes. Sometimes I was going to say <laughs> one, sports one,
2: columnists long. can't really have any writer's block. What do you have for, what do you say for those people who say they're experiencing writer's block? Is it a lack of research? What are some of the like anecdotes to, to beat that?
1: It's a very real thing. So <sighs> I, what, I, what I say and what I do is just start writing. Whatever's in your head, write it. Because you always can go back and change it around. And, and the delete key is a very valuable key to have on the keyboard. And, and uh, so, but just, just okay, you don't love what's in your head, but write it down, start writing. And there are a lot of times when, if I cover, a, say, a, a playoff game in any sport, and it goes into overtime or extra innings, and all of a sudden I am right on deadline. I've got 20 minutes to write 900 words that are coherent about what's happening here. And I'm still not sure who's going to prevail in this game. Hmm. So uh, that, 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 can be a, uh, that can be a real challenge and, and it has been over the years. But what I do in those situations is what's in my head, I put down on the computer, just start writing. And I'll go back and change it, make it sound better, and delete some things, and but usually when you start writing that way, it works out in the end. You have something that you can present to your editor on deadline that that works and is coherent. So, or if you're writing a book, just start writing. Just just uh, you can go back and revisit it when you, when you are not suffering from writer's block. And but just just take your thoughts in your head and put them down. Write, and usually you'll get through it
2: you any other advice about working with editors or maybe for people that aren't quite at that level yet, like peer review or colleagues or mentors, or how do you kind of make sure you're growing as a writer, I guess? Is there anything like that that you do habitually
1: read, read as much as you can and, and, and write as much as you can. I don't know if there's a, really a, any surefire way of getting better at this other than reading and writing and so I pass that on because and I hope I've gotten better over the years. Uh, and I think one way of at least believing that you are convincing yourself that you've gotten better is sometimes I'll go back and read something I wrote 20 years ago and I, I cringe and wince <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that, that phrasing today. And so I, I feel like I have gotten better. I think these books have made me better, but outside of, writing and writing. And I guess it's like anything else. Repetition makes you better. Uh, but, but reading as well and just reading people who are better than you, frankly. And that's what I've tried to do over the years.
2: Just to, um, one or two more, do you have any other advice for those sports writers that once you get past the, the breaking stories and and scores and some of those things, like how do you kind of start to add your voice into a piece?
1: Well, I think it's a good question. And I, I think that most people that you're writing for in, in sports journalism have watched the game. And so I think you need to, particularly today, everything is so instantaneous. They're streaming it, they're watching it, they're, they're watching it on Twitter. They, they don't need the, every detail of, of every run that was scored in this baseball game. But if you can give them scenes afterward, emotional players who've lost championship games at their, at their locker. Now we're getting back into locker rooms, uh, hopefully here pretty soon after the pandemic. And, and so, and a lot was lost in sports writing during the pandemic Mm -hmm. because those scenes weren't really available on zoom calls and press conferences after games were being held on zoom and they were press conferences I don't like press conferences. I want to get away from them and get into locker rooms and walk with a defeated athlete to his car, and that's where you get the best material. And you give those scenes and just the human emotion of say, and and a lot of times you, the, the the material is is more compelling in defeat, a season-ending crushing defeat than 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 in victory. So, I think that's where say walking with a vanquished athlete in a championship game out of the arena is where you can, you can put yourself, but more importantly, the reader right there next to that athlete. And so my advice to young, particularly young sports journalists is don't rely on press conferences. Don't rely on zoom calls, get people on the side As much as possible, there will be publicists who will try to prevent that, and you have to pitch around that as much as possible. But I've spent my 35, 36 years of doing this, working around press conferences and always trying to get somebody, a principal figure on the side, and preferably, if possible, in an emotional moment right after a game. Because what you want to try to do is, yeah, you want to add your voice, and that's a way of doing it. But, but more importantly is put the reader in that room or right next to that person that you're speaking with so that reader feels like he or she is speaking with the athlete or the coach in that scene. Thank you for
0: tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.